This episode, we're putting down roots in North America for two, count them, two different Native American cultures that show you, as they always do, what a badass really looks like. And speaking of incredible individuals, for our fact, we're taking a look at the person newspapers at the time dubbed the Zuni Princess, charming everyone from paupers to presidents with a myriad of talents. Like I told you, I've been waiting a minute for this episode, keeping even our staff on the edge of their seats. Here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 10, The Americas, Part 2, Tiwa and Sue, Two-Spirit Legends. Good day to you, madame, miss, sir, young one, senpai, everyone in between and beyond. How is you doing up in this pace? Hopefully well, hopefully safe, hopefully ready for today's episode. Helping us to press start on our old school tape recorder so that we... (laughs) That didn't work at all. Just uh, up top there was the track Mr. Mischief by the London collective All Good Folks. Stick around, you'll hear more of them at the end. Helping our podcast crawl all over your screen, we got Arthur on the logo. And helping you click our links because the episode art is just that damn good, we got Jacqueline giving us another monster home run for Native American episode cover art. And I happen to be Gree, the disembodied voice that evidently thinks he's way more charmingly cheeky than he really is, welcoming you to read the stories of and about indigenous peoples all over the globe. Last episode, we were slated to be in South America for step two of our LGBTQIA-centric world tour, but we migrated a little north, spending time in Mexico, bottom of North America and top of Central America, with the Aztecs and their gay deity, the Prince of Flowers. I promise, South America, I got you. I see you, and I'll hit you up two times on our next go-round. Today, we're jumping on into Native American lore for a topic that I can't wait to discuss. Two spirit. This is a bit of an involved topic. I'm going to start out by saying, number one, if you are not an indigenous North American, Indian, Native American, First American, however it is that you prefer to refer to yourself, then you probably should should not so willy-nilly look to adopt this term. I am not at all trying to tell you that willy-nilly is an appropriate phrase to use, or am I trying to tell someone how to live their life? But I would, uh, I would like to use my platform to help amplify a message from a community within a community that has that's already suffered grave indignities. Now, see, two-spirit is a Native American term. It is a Native American concept. I, I'm not saying that others outside of a culture can't understand another's culture, but this is, this is where we start to tread close to appropriation. So you just want to make sure that you're being careful. One of the reasons why I'm starting the episode out this way is because I've seen, just, just in my research alone, that some folks use transgender and two-spirit interchangeably. Now, I know I'm not the authority to speak on this, but I, I don't think that 100% scans. It's, it's a lot like we got into last week, looking at another culture with our own personal concepts as well as modern concepts. Things don't always align. To, to be simple and to be frank, I think this is one of those times. So this is not to be offensive or divisive or telling someone how to live. It, it's simply trying to pay my particular thought of respect to the term 
and to the people. Now, regardless of my thoughts or even the intricacies of this episode and its information, I do believe that those identifying as two-spirit or transgendered or gender fluid, and I'm not saying all of those things are the same thing, just speaking to the nature of this episode, I believe they will feel some feelings with, uh, with the stories that we get to read today. Now, to start us off, I want to say I'm sorry. My world tour turning into my apology tour, am I right? <laughs> Just whiffing all day long today. I am sorry because, number one, there are a lot of pronunciations today that, uh, that I couldn't find a- anywhere. I know, uh, I'm not saying that they don't exist out there. It's just with the, the time and the resources that I had, I, I couldn't find them. So I tried to put together what I thought might be the best way to uh, approach these terms. And I'm sorry because, as usual, I, I'm, I'm sure that I missed the mark. Additionally, instead of analyzing the Tiwa or the Sioux society, the cultures that brought you the two stories from today, I want to take a deep dive into the two-spirit term itself for our culture blast on the day. Now, I'm going to include links in the show notes to give you further information on both of these cultures, and please look into them. Now, going to our trusty book that we've done so far in the past couple of episodes, Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer Myth, Symbol, and Spirit. The entry for Two-Spirit is as follows. General term employed in the 1990s by Native American Indians and others to describe a ceremonial identity found in many tribal cultures, which frequently incorporates transgenderism, same-sex intimacy, the undertaking of tasks normally assigned to an individual of the opposite anatomical sex, and the pursuit of shamanic arts, including healing, magic, divination, and the guiding and retrieval of souls. Such individuals are commonly believed to be chosen by a divine force to realize a two-spirit destiny. In the past, the French term birdash, or the Spanish barde, was commonly used to refer generally to peoples possessing this ceremonial identity. Two-spirit persons include the Huame of the Mojave people, the Miati of the Hedatsa Nadol of the Navajo, and many others found in this encyclopedia. Seemingly succinct, but there is just so much to go over. Now, trust me, I know a number of things that you're thinking, and I'm sure they're pointed at me, and maybe they, they ain't even all that kind And how I started out my episode. And then, just how the entry read. But, 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 but wait, it gets worse. I mean, better. Sorry, Onyx, not today, because it does get better. You just, you have to trust me for now. Because instead of going top down in talking about this definition, I'd like to go bottom up. We're going to take a look at another entry in the good old encyclopedia. The entry for the Nadal reads as follows. Among the Navajo of North America, a two-spirit or third-gender male who often serves in a shamanic and or artistic capacity. Nadal also refers to the legendary ancestors of these people. The ancestor of the Nadal, sometimes called the Nadul, taught the people how to plant corn as well as watermelon and squash. He-she also taught them how to make flour, bake bread, and observe agricultural rites. The Nadul is sometimes identified with Kedizzi, wound in the rainbow. As such, she's said to have been created by Vigo Chidi and is depicted as wearing a rainbow robe. The first Nadul invented pottery, the gourd dipper, the matati, the hairbrush, the stirring sticks, and the water jar. Because there is a tradition that a primordial hermaphrodite has to die so that males and females could be born, Nadul are sometimes associated with death. Nadul's, like Wajinkita, are thought to be able to heal mental 
and physical illness and to aid in childbirth through the employment of magical songs. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So what we got up in here? Rainbow imagery, that's cool. But the bury your gaze trope ends up being way older than I thought. And we have been given a couple more terms. We're full encyclopedia rabbit hole, baby. The entry for Winjinkata reads as follows. Name given to two spirit shamans by the Lakota people of North America. Winjinkata were believed to be especially powerful healers and magicians, often affecting transformation through chance. When Winjinkata died, according to the Lakota shaman Lame Deer, they, quote within a quote, had a special hill where they were buried, end quote within a quote. Lame Deer remembered asking a Winjikata, quote within a quote, what he would be in the spirit land, a man or a woman. The Winjikata replied, both. So, besides being a mega cool answer and total sunglass donning Horatio moment, we begin to see a pattern here. These are, of course, healers and practitioners of magic, but also associated with death. Now, let us look at the Bigochidi entry. Navajo creator, trickster, healer, an artisan deity associated as a two-spirit being with bisexuality or pansexuality and transgenderism. Bigochidi is unusual in the Navajo pantheon in that he is described as having light skin, golden or red hair, and blue eyes. His hair color may have to do with his parentage, as he is considered the child of the sun. Because of his coloring, however, he is also claimed by some Navajos to be the patron of Anglo-Americans and Mexican-Americans. Bigochidi dwells in the heavens, and beyond his link to the sun, is also associated with the moon, one of his titles being Moonbearer. Bigochidi is known and revered as a trickster, having roles as shapeshifter and clown or holy fool. G.A. Richard, in 1983, observes that he can move without being seen and change into different forms at will. As a trickster, Bigochidi delights in sarcasm. His being a trickster is linked to his inclination to cross or disrupt traditional borders of masculinity, femininity, and heterosexuality. Out of quote. That's pretty awesome. Back into the quote. Richard relates that Bigochidi is a transvestite. He is also thought to have sexual intercourse with everything in the world. He likes to make himself invisible, then sneak up on young girls to touch their breasts, as he shouts, Bigo, Bigo! He also enjoys grabbing men's testicles. Out of the quote, yikes! Back in the quote. As a creator of plants, animals, humans, and even worlds, he is called one who made everything. Bigo Chidi is also the creator of the two-spirit being Alkana'asi. As a creator, he is further considered the god of sound and motion. Bigochidi is not only a creator of animals, but is also their guardian, especially butterflies and horses. He is a patron of hunters and riders of horses, teaching humans songs related to hunting. A healer, he is especially invoked to rid the body of sores on the skin. An artisan, Bigochidi is, in Navajo belief, the world's first potter. Uh... Quite frankly, I don't know how to respond to that entry. There is a lot going on. Um, Bigochidi is revered, as as you were read. Bigochidi is is a creator god, super powerful, and I'm I'm really not trying to to offend anyone. I'm just going off of what we just read. Super pervy. That's like to say in the least. So, 
I know that I'm probably missing out on either the best or the worst opportunity in the world, but I'm just going to move forward sans any more commentary. We do have, however, uh, multiple terms to look up in this entry alone. Trickster, Alkanaasi, and Butterflies. They all have their own entries in the encyclopedia. The Butterfly entry simply references back to Bigo Chidi, actually. And the Trickster entry gives us one quote, one line, and then just a list of reference deities from multiple cultures. The quote is from S.D. Gill and I.F. Sullivan in 1992, who described the trickster as a complex character type known for his trickery, buffoonery, and crude behavior, but also as a creator culture hero and teacher. The entry further goes on to give the single line, tricksters are also frequently shapeshifters and become associated with transgenderism and or same-sex eroticism. Now, I know it may seem slow, and it is, but I'm building my case here. So please follow along. I, I really appreciate your patience. The final leak in the encyclopedia chain, Alkanaasi, is as follows. Navajo term meaning one who follows the other. A name given to an androgynous, transgendered, or two-spirit being created by the god Bigochidi. The being was later split into male and female halves, although its original androgynous shadow appears to have survived in one of the Navajo lands of the dead. On its face, the takeaway that I see here with this term enforces cis-normativity as well as exclusion of LGBTQIA otherness. I know that there's, there's more to this, and, and I hope that I'm reading it wrong. It's just, it's hard for me to find any additional information on this term. Um, again, like I said earlier, I know that it's out there. Just with my resources, this is actually the least mentioned term slash concept that I've run into since beginning this podcast. Um, and I want to say, I think there were three references in passing that I saw this in. Nothing about it in full. So on that ambiguous note, I think we're going to start marching back up the chain. In the original two-spirit entry, <laughs> remember that? It seems like years ago. The original two-spirit entry, we have Miati, and its entry is as follows. Woman inclined, two-spirit male shamans of the Hedatsa people of North America. Among the Hedatsa, young men destined to become Miati dreamed that the female divinity instructed them to leave behind traditionally masculine attire, speech, behavior, and pursuits to adopt those of women or individuals of alternate gender. Following such dreams, the young men came to be viewed as mystic possessors of unique ritual instructions secured directly from the divinity, and were therefore treated as a special class of religious leaders. Miati wore magpie feathers in their hair, and white dresses made of sheepskin, white being the symbolic color of ash and oak, sacred trees in which the magpies lived. They also carried staffs made of ash, and decorated with white sage, sacred to the goddess. Beyond this, they painted red ovals on their cheeks and foreheads, wore braids of sweet grass looped around their left shoulders, and carried red blankets. They were thought to be especially gifted in hunting and agricultural magic. Miati often became possessed by village old women during the course of dance rituals. When this occurred, they would chant, You can't kill me, for I am holy. I am holy. I can do anything. 
And the entry for Huwame, the last bit of our encyclopedia knowledge, is as follows. Name for the two-spirit, third-gender, or transgendered female among the Mojave of the American Southwest. Often serving as a shaman, the Huwame was believed to be especially skilled at curing venereal disease. Some Huwame began to dream of becoming transgendered shamans while they were still in the womb. The Huwame usually took women as lovers or as spouses. That is everything that we get from our handy-dandy notebook. Thanks, Blue. At this point, I'm sure you see the through line. Spiritual humans transcending gender binary. However, there is a ton of nuance all over the board with all of these definitions. Again, let's rapid-fire round it bottom to top. Some questions, some comments. Huame, venereal disease specialist. That is super specific. Why? Miati, and actually all, two-spirit or transgendered women are the only people spoken of so far today. Why? Bigochidi, very interesting. That is one way to say it, and probably not the strongest, but you know exactly what I mean. Linking sexuality with identity. Not the first time that it's been done, and it will, it's not going to be the last. Why? Kujinkita, buried separate from the rest of the tribe. Why? Nadol, descendants of the goddess supreme. Originator of uh, how many things? Eleven crucial elements to the Navajo way of life. Oh, oh, and help cure disease and ease childbirth. Really, the only question I have with this entry is why the hell do we not know more about this deity? And two-spirit. We got two terms in this piece we still haven't gone over yet. That's Beardash and Barday. These, uh, these are what you will see used to be the anthropologically correct way in talking about non-binary Native Americans. One can say third gender here, but you'll see later on why I'm not. Now, this is a French word and a Spanish word that come from an earlier French word and an earlier Italian word and possibly an earlier Arabic word. The Arabic word in question means slave. The Italian word in question means either brat or prostitute. The Spanish word means sodomite, and the French word means passive homosexual. So imagine that you're a people that have a way of living for, hundred, for thousands of years, and suddenly another group of people come to your land, decimate your people, your habitat, your way of life, and then they call you a derogatory word to explain your identity, which then becomes your official title. Before the 1990s, that is what so-called modern society, referred to non-binary Native Americans as, and, and they just thought it was okay. So in the 1990s, when Two-Spirit came into existence, just the term, a big piece of the reason why was simply to reclaim an identity that had been mislabeled and disrespected for hundreds of years. So when I opened the episode talking about Two-Spirit and urging someone to maybe not claim this until you understood what it meant, what it was, and how it came into being, this is why. See, I don't even think the encyclopedia does the, the best job explaining about Two-Spirit. I mean, yes, it checks all the boxes. It, it generalizes a bit, and of course, it feels like those generalizations fit. But we're, we're, we're talking about fellow extremely complex human beings here, so we may want to approach dealing with specifics instead. So from a number of different sources linked to in the show notes, here is what I think is a better, more well-rounded definition of two-spirit. 
a Native American person who performed both the social activities as dictated by their people that were traditionally performed by men and women. According to most Native Americans, this person was then neither identified as a man or a woman, but as an alternative gender. For some tribes, a two-spirit man and a two-spirit woman were the same designated term, leading to the third gender designation. Some tribes, they were different designated terms, leading to an additional fourth gender designation. It does not end here, however, as two-spirit is not the same as transgendered, so it's possible for more than four genders under these observations. Some often shared two-spirit experiences that trend across Native American tribes include being artisans, usually a master level, engaging in fluidity of dress and social interaction, high-level spiritual roles in the community, and same-sex emotional and or physical relationships. Native American people have their own terms, as we've seen today, for two-spirit, meaning that this umbrella term may not be used or even welcomed by all Native Americans. It's important to recognize that with most all things in life, there is no catch-all. But the closer we get to learning and attempting to understand one another, the better it's going to be for everyone. A first step towards that? Recognizing another human being's sovereignty over themselves, their identity, their sexuality, their spirituality, and their heritage, all which may be linked, but they all very easily may not be linked. Now see, these are ultimately not just the desires of us, but they're also the hopes and dreams and lives of our legendary figures as well. You'll see through our two stories today, which I'm changing up, and we'll read verbatim from their source. These have been told through a recorder from the Native Americans that recall these legends, and I would like to preserve these recordings as they were given. They're from the book Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgendered Myths from the Arapaho to the Zuni, an anthology, edited by Jim Allege and published by Peter Lang Publishing, Incorporated, 2002. We'll begin with the Tiwa legend Warrior Girl, 1928, recorded by Elsie Clues Parson, and then read The Sioux Woman Who Acted as a Man, 1903, recorded by Alfred L. Kroeber. Where they were living, lived Pohaha, a girl who would not mind her mother or father or uncle. They were telling her to be a good girl, but she got angry quickly. Then they got tired telling her to be good, so they just let her go. One time she was grinding corn, and many enemies were coming very close to the village. Her uncle came to her house and asked her mother where she was. Her mother said she was grinding corn. He went to where she was grinding and caught her arm and said, Take your bow and arrows and go and fight with the enemies who are coming. You would not mind us and behaved like a boy. Now is the time for you to go and fight and be brave, said the uncle to the girl. She laughed. Ha ha! I am very glad to go, she said. I am very anxious to go and fight the enemies. I am not afraid. I will do all I can. That is why I tell you, come out said the uncle. I will, she said. She stood up, and her uncle gave her bow and arrows and hung the bandolier around her. Then she looked around, and there was a rattle hanging on the wall. 
She stepped up and got it. Then she started to sing. As soon as she stopped singing, she laughed. Ha ha! She sang four times in the room. Then she went out and sang outdoors four times. Whenever she paused in singing, she laughed. Ha ha! Because she was not afraid to fight. Then she started, and the men followed her. People were saying, the Cottonwood People Girl is going to fight. Some of them laughed at her. But she just went on, singing and laughing. Ha ha! Happy she was going to fight. Before she met the enemies, she pulled her dress up four times to show the enemies that she was a girl. Then she fought. She killed all the enemies that same day. After that, the fighting was over, and she turned back. The men fighting with her saw she had turned Okua. She was wearing a mask. One side was blue, and the other side was yellow, and she had long teeth. They were afraid of her. She looked strange. She no longer looked like a girl, but she kept on singing her song, ending with, Ha ha! She kept on going home, and the men followed her. When they got to the village, all the people came out and watched the girl, how she had become some sort of a person. When she went to war, she did not look like that. She went to her house and went in, and then she took off her mask and hung it on the wall, and she hung her rattle in the same place, and the bow and arrow close, too. That is the way that girl became Pohaha. Her uncles came to the house at night. They had been talking about her. All day they had been thinking that she must be a man. So they went in there, all gathered together. The oldest uncle said they would put her in as war chief. Even if she was a girl, she was a man, too. So they said that whenever enemies came, she was to be the leader in war. You have to watch for the people, they told her. If any sickness comes, you have to drive the sickness away from the people and consider that the people are all your children. Treat them right, they told her. After that, she became a good girl. She no longer acted as she used to. When war came, she went first and dressed as she did before in war. After she died, she left her mask and said that it would represent her. She would always be with the people, even if dead. I will be with you all the time, she said. The mask is me, she said. That is why those cottonwood people keep that mask. Among the Sioux, there was a woman whose parents were good and kept her dressed finely, but she wanted to dress as a man. Her father was displeased at her immodesty. A war party started against the Pawnees, and she went along, wearing men's clothing. She struck many enemies, was unwounded, and achieved much honor. After the return of the party, the Sundance was made. The woman said, I know you do not like my conduct. You are ashamed of me. I cannot be killed by the enemy in war, but anyone in the tribe can kill me. Let some man come kill me. Then her father dressed her as a man. The woman mounted a good horse, stood in front of her father's tent, closed her eyes, and said, 
I am ready. Then the man who had been selected shot her. Now, I'm not explicitly going to go over what I liked about today's tale, but I do have a couple points. One, I love that the Tiwa girl flashed her enemies and was like, hey, hey, look, I'm a woman. A woman is about to f*** you up. And two, I asked the question earlier, uh, why were all the references in the encyclopedia, at least how I read them, about two-spirited assigned male-at-birth individuals? I really, really want you to think about this. I want you to think about how do you personally see transgendered people? How do you see transgendered people represented? How do you see women represented? Whose stories do you see and whose stories do you not see? And most importantly, why do you think all that is? Personally, I have many. (laughs) I have all the thoughts on all these questions. But these are not for today. These are questions for you to take and to chew on yourself. Please, please take your time thinking about these, answering them, uh, because it, it, it really means the world and the future that we all get our heads on right. And full disclosure, my fact for the day is an assigned male at birth, two-spirited individual. So I'm not, I'm not climbing up on a high horse or, or holding some type of moral high ground. It's just... Uh, I feel like these questions are extremely important. I personally have a multitude of answers as to why I chose the individual that I did choose, but I'm not hiding behind an excuse. That's absolutely no reason. The question still stands. Why do we see the tales being told of the people that we do, and why do we not of those that we don't? Now, there are many interpretations of both the stories that we went over today, and I want to go over all of them, but like I said, I already had to cut a lot from the episode, and we still just, we just have so much more to go. So what I do want to go over right now is something that I found online in response to the tale of the Sioux woman. The first time that I read this story itself, I gasped out loud at the last line. Um, I, I know it's, it's rather simple and short, but I couldn't even get through a second reading. Because I was crying. I was crying as I originally wrote this episode once I got to this part. And I was not good when I found this blog. I want to quote this young person's words just verbatim. But I also I don't I don't think that I should. I, I know, I know I they put their words in their blog for the world to see, but they did not say that they wanted them broadcast on a podcast across the planet. I know, I know, some folks are like, really, in an episode where you read entry upon entry directly from the source, you're going to balk and an individual's right on this? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely will. What they shared is, in large part, the reason why I read the story uh, for today's episode. Now, to paraphrase their journey, they were in the library. They found a book on indigenous lore non-binary lore. They went through, they were reading it, and uh, they stopped on our second story of the day. After reading the tale, their response was, for me, it was visceral. 
They were devastated. They were eloquent and powerful and spoke on how this Sioux woman wanted to dress as a man. So she did. And, not that she needed to, but she proved herself to everyone, to their enemies and to her own people. And for this, she died. She, she had a choice to be herself and to die, or be something that she wasn't and live. So she chose death. However, her own people had to do that. They had to be the ones responsible for it because they were the ones responsible for it. Now, this young person, through their words, I gathered that they did not want to die. But so many things in our society made it hard for them to live. Unlike my radio time spent with you, I'm actually a contrarian. Now, I, I, I really try super hard not to be a dick about this, but I, I'm, just, I'm naturally a devil's advocate. I'm a cynic. I'm a, a pessimist. And sometimes I, I feel like I hate everything. But I don't want to. Therein lies a lot of my confusion. I'm overjoyed by human beings and their positive potential. But when I see all of the unnecessary pain the world over, and those who turn a blind eye to it, I just, I, I, I don't know how to react. Like this young person's blog. How could anyone ever stand by when a young person lives during their formative years through so much pain? My nephew is transgendered and he is so strong, so unbelievably strong. I mean, that's, that's good. Of course, you know, it's a good thing to be strong, but I, I just want him to be able to be a damn kid. I mean, he, he has to be strong because there's, there's so much in his life that brings him pain. So for all those past, present, and future, everyone who feels pain simply because they want to be themselves, I would like to walk forward with you, for, for all of us, to walk together into a better future. Not one where pain just doesn't exist. I don't even think that's possible, nor do I think that that's healthy. But at least a future where these individuals feel supported. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the entire reason why I started this podcast in the first place. So thank you. Thank you, all of you, anyone listening. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And for our fact, we're going to take a look at Wiwa, Zuni Lahamana. So damn famous, I almost found what one would call too much information on Wiwa. Simply because I had no idea how to manageably break it down for all y'all. To start with, Wiwa was born in 1849 in the United States, specifically in New Mexico, which is in the southwest corner of the country. Now, let's start by tackling pronouns. <laughs> I am not quite sure what Wiwa's choice would have personally been. Wiwa was assigned male at birth and wore both male and female clothing, performed both male and female tribal duties, and was pretty damn good at all of it. We have records of Wiwa being referred to as he and as she. I've seen both of these used, but most often, I see they, them. So, I chose to work with they, them during this article, and I hope that doesn't offend anyone. Born to the Zuni people, Wiwa came about in the year that white settlers and the Zuni first began to interact. The Zuni had tentatively sided with the colonists in battles against the Navajo and the Apache, and the colonists thanked them by giving them smallpox, something that killed both of Wiwa's parents when Wiwa was four. 
Wee-Wa and their brother were adopted by their aunt on their father's side and remained a part of their mother's tribal clan, the Badger People, while keeping ceremonial ties to their father's tribal clan, the Dogwood People. Now for the Zuni, the Lahamanas are tribal members assigned male at birth that take up societal and religious roles traditionally held by tribal members assigned female at birth. They can be recognized when the Zuni children are toddlers, but for Wiwa, this happened much later, straight up Anakin style, when they were 12. After a few years of participating in religious ceremonies, Wiwa was fully recognized by the tribe, and their further training was put strictly in the hands of female relatives. Now this is when their badassery truly began to take form and how this is when they started learning everything from cooking to pottery to weaving. In 1864, some of the Zuni moved and became farmers, including Wiwa and their fam. This is when Wiwa first started doing the also traditionally labor-intensive work of a farmer normally reserved for the males of the tribe. When Wiwa was entering their 20s, they began taking over for their aging aunt with household duties and was truly pulling double-duty work, working inside as well as outside of the house. By the end of the decade, Protestant missionaries began to arrive among the Zuni in a bid to assimilate Native Americans into the colonial lifestyle, which meant indoctrination into Christianity, abandonment of all their spiritual practices and beliefs, and eradication of their culture and social practices, which had been part of their people for, uh, uh, what do you want to say, uh, hundreds of years? Thousands of years? So, again, lots of fun. The sticking point here is that these were more than likely the first white people that Wiwa actually would have had direct interaction with, and they were in their 30s. Around this time is when famed anthropologist Matilda Cox Stevenson and Wiwa met, which is the moment that someone needs to write a friggin' TV show about like yesterday. Stevenson early on would describe her eventual BFF as the most intelligent person in the Pueblo. Strong character made Wiwa's word law among both men and women with whom Wiwa associated. Though Wiwa's wrath was dreaded by men as well as women, Wiwa was loved by all children to whom Wiwa was ever kind. Furthermore, Wiwa learned English in order to get along better with the colonist. Stevenson commissioned Wiwa for some pottery giving us what is probably the first account of an Etsy transaction, only this pottery would make its way to the National Museum in D.C. Besides putting together pottery, they also became a master weaver, putting together baskets, blankets, and clothing. Their eye in putting together aesthetically pleasing patterns and colors is revered to this day. Amazingly so, Wiwa basically pulled that double duty that I spoke of earlier for the rest of their life. They were clutch for the tribe's hunting parties and also proceeded over tribal judicial matters, both things traditionally held by tribal men. Wiwa's gender identity was never questioned and in fact celebrated in their tribe, where the tribe was proud of and applauded their abilities, personality, and leadership, both spiritual and diplomatic. Wiwa spoke on behalf of the entire tribe to the colonists across genders and across age groups in trying to bring the two groups of people together and teach the white settlers about the Zuni way of life. This made it a natural fit for Wiwa to serve as the Zuni ambassador and travel to D.C., where they gave presentations on Zuni culture at the Smithsonian and performed shows at the National Theater. Shaking President Grover Cleveland's hand must have been the crux of the trip, where Wiwa was introduced to the president and the city as the Zuni princess. Taking both the city and eventually the country by storm, the Lahamana is remembered by all for their desire to learn, 
always advancing community engagement on behalf of Native Americans, and being able to turn the other cheek when, despite it all, they were still ostracized by colonists. Upon returning to the Zuni after their trip to D.C., relations between the government and the tribe broke down, leading to Weewa being imprisoned on the absolute lunatic charge of witchcraft among a handful of other Zuni leaders. Serving a month in prison, upon release, Weewa walked more than 40 miles during the winter back to their tribe, where they continued to advance communication between the tribe and settlers until their death in 1896, three years shy of 50 years old. There's an entire episode of the Baller podcast, Queer as Fact, that goes over all of this and more, and you can find a link in our show notes. And that's the show, folks. Thank you for now, forever, for always, for checking out our podcast as we took a look at the Sioux and Tiwa and their LGBTQIA-friendly legends of two-spirit Native Americans. Come with us again next episode as we make our way up to the Arctic Circle, where we'll once again be giving you a tale of two LGBTQIA icons. And uh, you can't see it, but I'm biting my lip because once again... We're jumping into an Inuit story that I can't wait to tell you. We're too excited to sleep. All our thank yous were thrown out towards all good folks in their bookending track, Mr. Mischief. And we're going to keep throwing them thank yous over to Jacqueline with her jaw-droppingly phenomenal episode cover art. And we're not stopping throwing throwing all them thank yous over to Arthur and his heart-stoppingly gorgeous podcast logo. If you, the audience, the ones we're doing this all for, have any questions or comments or concerns about any of the things or all of the things, please shoot us an email at info at coloredfolklore.com. And if, like my daughter, you think that email is, and I quote here, gross, then why don't you check out our social media accounts? New followers, we see you over at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're super behind on our updates, but... What else is new? Trust us, we're coming up with a plan. So, lastly and not leastly, if you're not in the market for medias of any social kind, we invite you to sneak a peek at our website, www.coloredfolklore.com. We go over friends of the show on our ally page. We go over all the episodes of the show on the episodes page. Hmm, didn't see that one coming. We go over all the reasons why you should give us all your money on the donate page. Yeah, yeah, we're playing. We don't need you to give us all of your money. Give all your money to local businesses. Charities, peeps that need your time, your thoughts, your hearts, your actions. Send your money their way. And when you do, maybe you can refer them to us. Send them this podcast. Leave a review, leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice, detailing all the stuffs about our stuffs, and let people know that indigenous myths are where it's at. Fairy tales and folklore help bring the world closer together. Legends, tall tales, they help us describe what it is that we're seeing, what it is that we're living, what we're going through. And they add an anthropomorphic turtle to teach us a lesson while they're doing it. And come on, let's be honest. Who doesn't need a talking turtle in their lives spouting wisdom about how best to run a race? Right? Unless you a cocky-ass rabbit, then, then you're probably good.